0: Well, have you ever set out to try and change somebody else? I'm sure most of you think, oh, no, I've never tried to do that. But you have, haven't you? You do it all the time. You want people to let you in the line for, for dinner. You want uh, drivers to drive differently so you honk your horn. You, you're always trying to change people's behaviour. And your parents have been doing it to you for all your life. They want you to change your behaviour as well. When I was a university student, um, I, I took a course in behaviourism. And we learned about a guy called B.F. Skinner, who was the great uh, king of the behaviourist a uh, 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 school of psychology. And Skinner claimed that simply by behaviour modification techniques, by rewards and punishment, you could get somebody to do almost anything you like. He told us that if we were clever enough as a class, we could get him to lecture us standing on one leg in the corner for the whole lecture, just by reinforcing behaviour. Now we tried it, it didn't really work. But I think he's right, you you can modify people's behaviour. You offer them the right rewards and incentives, you threaten them with the right punishments and you can get them to change what they do. But have you really changed them? Yes, you've changed their actions, but have you changed them? Have you changed their hearts? Have you changed who they really are? And I think the answer is no. I can remember looking after a couple of young boys Um, and they were playing with Lego, as young boys tend to do, and one of them owned all the Lego, and the other wanted to play with the other one's Lego. And I was sort of listening in, and the one who owned all the Lego just wouldn't let the other one play with any of his Lego. He just said, no, it's mine. And I'm listening, thinking, this is not so good, is it? And eventually I went in and and, uh, I interfered. And to the guy who was being selfish, I I said, can I have a, a word with you for a minute? And I took him outside so he wouldn't be embarrassed. And I said... Why won't you share? And he said, it's my Lego. I don't want him to use it. And I said, oh, what do I do? I said, well, listen, do you want to have friends? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen if you invite people and, 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 and people around and you won't share anything with them? How many friends do you think you'll have? Can you hear the reward bit coming out? He was unmoved. <laughs> so I said, I'll take another action then. You better watch out. You can hear the other one, can't you? And it suddenly struck me, though, the foolishness of what I was doing. You see, I wanted him to be unselfish, to share, and I gave him two selfish reasons to be unselfish. It just doesn't work, does it? Rewards and punishment just reinforce self-centredness. They don't change people at the core of their being. They don't change selfish people to generous people. And if you wanted to do that, find some selfish people, that's not hard. Try and change them into generous people. How will you do it? It's, it's actually impossible, isn't it? You can't do it. How do you change pe- people who are full of themselves to loving and caring for others? Sure, you might be able to change their behaviour, but they're still just as selfish as they were to start with. But there's the more important question than how to change others. How to change myself. How do I change from being selfish to being full of myself? Some naive people think that education might do it. Give people enough information, they do enough university courses, that will change them. And I admit it can have some effect. You can tell people about global warming and the effect it will have on the poor of the world, but it actually won't change them unless they already care about the poor of the world. No, it's changing the heart. That is the difficult thing, but that's the essential thing. That's what we need. And the stunning news of the Bible, the almost impossible-to-believe news of the Bible, is that that's exactly what God promised to do. We looked at Ezekiel 36 on Monday. God made the promise that he would give his spirit to give people a new heart, Put his spirit in them, to move them from the inside out to follow his decrees, to behave differently, to transform them. The age of the spirit, why is there going to be an age of the spirit? Why has God sent the spirit? Well, not to entertain us and and impress us and give us spine tingles, but to transform us. Jeremiah 31 is similar. Where again, God in the Old Testament promised the day when he would write his law in our minds and hearts. So that we would be moved to do them. Moved from the inside, not imposed from the outside. See, we can't change ourselves left to ourselves. It's like trying to lift yourselves up by your shoelaces. You don't actually rise at all. You just stay where you are. The spirit comes to change behaviour. But not just change behaviour in the sense of forcing you to do good, enticing you to good to do good where you have to do it but instead by changing us from the inside so we want to do good we want to do what is right and noble and pleasing to God and as we come to this fruit of the spirit we're hovering around one of the the central poles of the spirit's work this is not periphery this is dead bang in the middle so please come with me if you're not there already to Galatians chapter 5 this is the passage we'll be looking at tonight a passage that speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 16, he begins this section by talking about the power of the Spirit. I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. The Spirit does what religion or law could never do. The law just shouts at us, do this, don't do that. But it's powerless to change us. It tells us if you break the law, you're condemned. But we still do it anyway. And so it enslaves us. We're enslaved to its demands. We're enslaved to its condemnation. And all religion is like that. Whether it's Sharia law of, of uh, Islam, whether it's the pillars of Buddhism, whatever it is, it shouts at us like that, but it has no power to change us. Why? Because we're flesh. As we saw this morning from Romans chapter 8, flesh is what we are naturally. Flesh is our normal natural selves. Not the tissue stuff, but the sinful heart. The heart in rebellion against God. Full of desires clamouring to be satisfied. Shaped and directed by those desires. Desires for attention and respect. Desires for food and sex and for fun and pleasure and the desires themselves aren't all evil. The trouble is they're shaped and directed by an evil heart. I want turns into I need, I'll take. But do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying we're not simply flesh anymore. If the Spirit is in us, then walk by the Spirit. If if you have the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit's what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict so that you don't do what you want. Sorry, so that you do do what you want. It's a bit hard to work out exactly how, how Paul means it, but what he's saying is that the Spirit brings a whole new dimension, a new dynamic to your life. Before, there was just the flesh. Now you have the Spirit, and the Spirit opposes the flesh. There's a now another force there that's working in the opposite direction. But it works differently. The Spirit doesn't shout from outside, don't do this. It works from the inside, a new heart, a new, ta- a new nature, so that the conflict we have is not outside, it's in us, it's in the core of our beings. Have you felt that conflict? A desire to do what is good, a, a real desire, but still a desire to do what isn't good, what is evil. Well, you've only got that conflict because the Spirit is in you, creating that conflict So you no no longer simply do the evil that you wanted to do. And he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. It doesn't mean you'll never sin, but it's no longer unrestrained evil in opposition to God as it was. We're empowered by the Spirit to live differently. And he says, if we're led by the Spirit, verse 18, we're not under law. Uh, When he says, if you're led by the Spirit, he's not especially in doubt about whether you are. It's more, since you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. As we saw this morning, to be led by the Spirit is to be led to God as our Father, through knowing that he sent his Son, Jesus, to die for us. That is, because of the grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus, lavished on us by the Father, we now have him as Father. The Spirit leads us to him as Father. And as we're led by the Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the body, the the works of the flesh. And so we're not under law. That is, law isn't the thing that's going to restrain sin, rules to keep, just try harder, come on, you can do it. No, the law is powerless. It's the Spirit's power we need to restrain sin so that we can do good, to live lives of genuine goodness. But you might say to me, Tim, yeah, I, I feel that. I can feel the pull in two directions. There's flesh and spirit, but how do I sort of tell which is which? How do I know which desires are from the flesh and which are from the spirit? Now, if you ask that question, Paul's answer is pretty plain, actually. He speaks plainly to us in verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. You should be able to work it out. And you can, can't you? The acts of the flesh are obvious, and he gives a list of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. That is, there's more like that. He hasn't got even halfway through the list. It's not exhaustive. Now, what do you make of a list like that? Well, frankly, it sounds like the typical university student weekend, doesn't it? (laughs) Those that can afford it anyway. It covers sexual things, spiritual, religious things and especially social things. Some of them are so common in our culture we may be surprised to find them there. Sexual immorality. (coughs) Pornography is so obviously degrading, isn't it? And yet it's becoming so common, so nothing in our culture. It's just available to everybody. And yet it's hard to avoid the fact that it objectifies women and men as well, that it is degrading to everybody involved. It's obviously of the flesh, sinful. All sex outside God's design of heterosexual marriage is sexual immorality. But it includes things like divisions. We've just had an election. And I'm very thankful I live in a country where people don't use guns to settle elections. There was no violence. And I'm very grateful to God to be in that sort of country But there certainly was divisiveness, wasn't there? The names that were used in the media, on Facebook and everywhere else, we thrive on divisiveness like that. But it's an obvious fruit of the flesh, acts of the sinful nature. Envy. Envy is simply jealousy of what other people have, their possessions, their talents, their popularity. Every advertisement on television works on envy, doesn't it? It shows you something that you ought to want And we're sucked into it. Envy rules our culture. Almost all of them are not only anti what God wants, they're anti-social as well. They destroy relationships and the relational harmony that we could live in. Adultery, anger. The sad irony, I think, is everyone knows the pain and destruction they cause and yet they're just normal in our culture. And these are the behaviours that entertain us on television, aren't they? Our movies uh, have these scattered through them, the TV dramas, the reality television, whether it's uh, Games of Thrones or MasterChef. (laughs) There's division, there's envy. It's all there, isn't it? Your YouTube clips, that's what it's full of. That's what people want to watch. And Paul says we need to be careful because it's easy to be deceived and not understand, not recognise that such behaviour disqualifies you from the kingdom of God. He's talking about a lifestyle. here not occasionally doing it, but if your behaviour is just flesh, if it's pure flesh, just this sort of life, you're not born again by the Spirit of God. The conflict is not real. And he repeats the warning. Of course, we're so easily deceived. But then he comes to the fruit of the Spirit. And as you read it, it's, it's just had a different feel to it, doesn't it? The works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. If you're setting those to music, it'd be very different sort of music, wouldn't it? Totally opposite sorts of music. They're just obviously poles apart. But it's not just their poles apart, it's a different sort of thing. It's the acts, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is about character. It's about what we are like, what we are, not just behaviour. It's not some sort of coerced outward conformity. It's real transformation of the person from the heart outwards, from the core of their being so our desires are different. The first one's love. Love is so different to that self-focus, that self-protection, that self-centeredness. It's a concern for others, a compassion, a willingness to serve others, even at personal cost. The character leads to action, but it comes from the heart. It's not imposed from the outside. And why are these the fruit of the Spirit? Why does the Spirit produce this sort of thing? Well, it's just true to nature, isn't it? That's what God himself is like. Love and joy and peace and patient and forbearing and kind and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. The Spirit produces what he is. The Spirit reproduces what we see of God in the gospel of Jesus. We see in the gospel of Jesus, in Jesus coming from the Father, sent by the Father to die for us and rise again to be Lord. We see this love in action. We see this joy and peace and forbearance and self-control in action. It's the gospel that produces this sort of fruit. That powerful word of the Spirit that rebirths it is the seed that grows into this fruit. It begins the process of transformation. It sets the direction of the transformation. The fruit of the Spirit is conforming us to the likeness of the Jesus we hear about In the gospel, the Jesus we trust and follow and love. But notice he uses this biological idea, this metaphor of fruit. It's botanical growth. It's not mechanical growth. You you can grow things mechanically. You can get a whole lot of bricks and just throw them on a pile and the pile gets bigger. But this is different sort of growth. This is organic, biological growth. How does an apple grow? Well, an apple grows gradually. If you got a hold of an apple as it's growing and you held it in your hand, could you feel it grow? Would your fingers be forced apart as the apple grows? No. Could you see it grow? Now, if you watched it for ten minutes, would it be obviously bigger than it was at the beginning of the ten minutes? No. But if you came back two weeks later, it would be different, wouldn't it? It would have grown. You could measure the difference, measure the growth. But you have to be patient. Am I more gentle today? Well, if you ask, Am I more gentle today than I was yesterday? the answer is almost certainly no. But if you say, Are you more gentle today than you were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? I hope, I think, I'm confident actually the answer is yes. That's what growth is like, growth of fruit, growth of the fruit of the Spirit. It's gradual, but it's also inevitable. See, an apple, once it starts growing, keeps growing, doesn't it? You, you can't stop it. You can't put your hand around it and say, stop growing. It just keeps growing. That's the nature of it. If the Holy Spirit has rebirthed you and begun to transform you, he will keep transforming you. It's like a, a seed. Sometimes you see examples of, of a place where a seed has got lodged in a rock somewhere. And it's, uh, to start with, there's just this tiny crack in the rock and the seed gets in there and a little chute comes up. And you think, there's this tiny little chute, there's this huge rock held together with all, all the stuff that held, holds rocks uh, together so well that, that they'll break your, your, your head, won't they? And logically you think, who's going to win? The rock or the seedling? say, the rock, but you're wrong. It's the seedling that wins, isn't it? It grows and grows very gradually, very slowly, but it splits the rock completely asunder. That's what biological, that's what growth of fruit is like. It's inevitable. And we're not saved by fruit, but by faith, by faith in the Lord Jesus and in his grace to us. But the faith that saves is never fruitless. It bears fruit, the fruit of the spirit. And so a fruit is an indicator of regeneration. It's right to look back and ask, has there been change? But let me warn you at this point, don't compare yourself to others. That's a terrible direction to go because when you compare yourself to others, what will happen? Either you'll be filled with pride because you think you're doing better than them Or you'll be filled with despair because you're not doing as well as them. But this is more like little athletics. You know little athletics? Little athletics, you don't run against the other competitors. Well, you sort of do, but you don't really. You run against the time you ran last week. That's the only thing that matters. You're always comparing yourself with what you were, not what other people are. So when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, don't compare yourself to the person next to you. Don't look at them and say, They look like they're doing better than me woe is me, don't look at them and say, they're pathetic, aren't they? I'm much better than them. Now compare yourself to what you were a year ago, even six months ago, three years ago. Is the spirit producing this sort of fruit? Because it is inevitable that if the spirit is at work, this fruit is coming. It's gradual, it's inevitable, but it's also symmetrical. Now this is a bit harder to explain how many fruit of the Spirit are there? One. I heard somebody say it. The fruit of the Spirit is... That was my wife. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of a... I mean, it doesn't sort of work in... English. The fruit of the Spirit is... And he gives you a list of, of eight things. But that's because there is actually only one fruit of the Spirit. And what it points to is the symmetry of the way in which the fruit of the Spirit comes. It's not that there are different sorts of fruit, apples, oranges, bananas. They're all aspects of one fruit, of one new heart. So that if there's unsymmetrical growth, you know that something is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> something is wrong. If it's not symmetrical, if one thing is growing faster than the others, then something is drastically drastically wrong it's true for bodies it's true for fruit they grow in proportion if they're out of proportion something isn't what it should be that is it points to the fact that you can't have any one of these fruit if you call them that without all the rest at the same time and it's not hard to see that that you can't have genuine joy without forbearance and patience Because if you haven't got forbearance and patience, your joy will disappear as soon as anything goes wrong, won't it? It won't be genuine. It'll be fleeting and fake. You can't have love without faithfulness. If my love disintegrates five minutes from now, I'm not faithful to that person in the way that I love them. It's just sentimentality. It's not love. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. You can't have kindness without self-control. Self-control is the capacity to do what you've decided to do, to follow it through, rather than getting distracted and and unable to follow through. Well, kindness, real kindness, means you follow through in kindness. Again, if you're only kind for five minutes, it's not genuine kindness, is it? If you decide you want to act kindly, but you don't follow through kindness, it's a fraud, it's a a fake. And interesting, self-control is something that in some ways, seems the opposite of what many people expect of the Spirit. Some people think that it's only the Spirit if it's spontaneous, if I lose control, if I'm swept up and swept out and I'm slayed and enraptured and in another dimension. That's the work of the Spirit. But no, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We say that in Jesus, don't we? It's self-control that got him to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, In deep anguish, he prays that the cup will pass from him. And then we see him in front of Pilate. We see him in front of Caiaphas, silent, absolute self-control. It's his self-control that helped him get to the cross. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And this symmetrical idea helps us discern the difference between the fruit of the spirit and just what's natural, just personality traits, just survival mechanisms. This symmetry is actually really beautiful, isn't it? There are some faces that lack symmetry and I don't know quite why people think they're beautiful. But we'll go back to something a bit more obvious. Sorry. (laughs) Do you like those faces? Yeah. They're not symmetrical. Um, Go back to these guys. See... Some of us are naturally very gentle. We've always been like that. But our gentleness is not the product of the spirit. It it doesn't come with love and faithfulness. It's actually an expression of fear and self-protection. I'm so insecure, I'm never willing to speak up. I just am gentle. But it doesn't come with love, if it doesn't come with faithfulness, if it doesn't come with that courage to speak gently, yes, but speak when, it, when other people need to hear it. If there's no joy in my gentleness, just that fearful self-protection, it's not the work of the Spirit. Some of us are very, are very self-controlled. You haven't cried for 15 years. Of course, your mum kept saying to you, don't be a girl, don't cry, come on, boys, do not cry. It's pride that stops you crying, not love, not self control. It's just that rigid self control. I cannot cry. In fact, you can never cry. That's not the fruit of the Spirit, because they're symmetrical. They all come together. Some of us are wonderful at meeting new people. We're very gregarious and extrovert, but we never make deep friendships, because our extrovertness is just our personality. It doesn't come with the patience and faithfulness that it takes to develop rich and deep friendships is not a fruit of the Spirit. There's a symmetry to the work of the Spirit. All these aspects grow together. And that means, I think, if you recognise that you're out of proportion, if some parts of you are developed much more strongly than others, it can sort of help to focus on those, the weaker aspects, to pray, to work on them, to try and become those things. But it's actually not the solution. You see, if I'm weak on one thing, if I'm anemic on something, it's an indication that the other fruit aren't really there either. They're not the genuine fruit of the Spirit. And so if I exclusively focus on some, I'll misunderstand. I won't really work at the broader oneness of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I need to pray for all aspects Now, if the fruit of the Spirit are gradual and inevitable, they're symmetrical, you could conclude that we're to be merely passive in all this. Just sort of let it happen. It's the Spirit who does it. He produces his fruit. It's inevitable he'll do it. I'll just sit here and do nothing and see what happens. But that's not the conclusion that Paul reaches. Notice what he says in verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There's... There's something for us to do. It's dependent on the Spirit. It's since the Spirit has made us alive. But there's an exhortation to us to keep in step with the Spirit. The idea is uh, putting your feet in the same footsteps as the person who's walked in front of you. Have you ever done that on the beach? You found a set of footprints and you just put your feet in their footprints and you discover they have really long legs. (laughs) This is doing the same thing with the Spirit metaphorically I see where the spirit's going he's producing this fruit and that fruit he's producing his crop I keep in step I put my feet where his feet have already trod and part of the logic of that is since we live by the spirit since the spirit is the one that's made it alive let's keep in step with the spirit he's growing fruit so go in the same direction the spirit's going And there's two realities, I think, that that, that lie behind that. The first one is you simply can't avoid living and deciding. Every moment of your life you're making decisions, one way or another, aren't you? And the decisions you make ultimately boil down to will you keep in step with the flesh or with the spirit? You can't avoid making those decisions unless you're asleep. And you can't stay asleep all the time. By the way, if you're asleep now, we'd love you to wake up. But if you want to keep sleeping, keep sleeping. That's fine. And so if we can't avoid making decisions, he says, keep in step with the spirit. That's the only way to go, isn't it? But there's something more to it than that. So it's only worth keeping in step with the spirit, that is seeking to put effort and energy into being different because the spirit is working from the inside to transform us. To try to be different without the spirit is a waste of time. It's like sort of painting stripes on your dog to hope it'll become a tiger. It's sort of stupid, isn't it? You paint a few stripes on, you say, come on, tiger. It's not, it's still a dog. Just changing a bit of behaviour won't change you. But what the Spirit does, metaphorically, if you like, is it changes a dog into a tiger. And it doesn't matter much whether you've got the stripes or not, it's a tiger, because it's been changed from the inside out. So because the Spirit has made you alive, Keep in step. it's not a waste. The spirit is at work to transform you. Now the implications of this, I hope, are fairly clear. What to do then? Well, march on. Keep in step with the spirit, this mysterious, fruit-bearing, fruit-growing work of the spirit inside us. Keep in step in your behavior and your choices multiple times a day, multiple times an hour, there are options in front of you. And as I suggested, the options really boil down in so many ways into either the goodness of the Spirit or the the not-goodness of the flesh, of our sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other. That's part of the experience of living as a Christian. The Spirit creates that conflict. It's a good thing. And in that conflict, we make choices. Can I encourage you to think about those choices as Paul does? Keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is producing this fruit. It's gradual, it's inevitable, it's real. So go with the Spirit. The motivation is to live by the Spirit. Ultimately that means it's the gospel of God and his enormous grace to us and the Spirit enlightening us, the eyes of our heart being opened so that we understand deeply the non-understandable love of Jesus. And that's the deep well that we are to keep drawing from, being enriched by, because that's what produces the fruit of the Spirit. But i have been remiss not to take you back to the warning as well. In verse 21, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're talking about eternal destinies here, brothers and sisters. This is not a game. This is real life and death. He warns Christians about turning back on the spirit to live a life merely in the flesh. If you do that, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't address the question whether that's possible, whether it actually happens. He just says, don't do it. Can I say to you, as a matter of experience, of a few years now of observing university students, there seem to be two things in particular that grab university students and choke the life out of them, if you like. One is greed and the other is sex. Greed is just materialism, wanting things for the joy they give you, material possessions and all the the fun that they can be, the toys, the the security, uh, the status that comes from having things. And uni, if you boil it down, is not about education. It's selling you the ticket... To a professional career that you hope will assure you of a good income for the rest of your life. I presume that's why your parents have encouraged you to go to university, why many of your parents have funded you, because they want that for you. And I'm, uh, and I'm not against that. And you scrape and study, maybe sometimes to get through, to land the dream job after you graduate. And many Christians I've seen, keen to serve Jesus while they've been students at uni, but Somehow, greed just envelops them. It takes a few years. The first few years, well, they're just out establishing their career and there's extra training on and they say, well, it'll be worth it in the long run because I'll get into the career and then it'll all be okay. And then a few years into the career, their company offers them uh, a transfer to an overseas location, an office over there, and it's, it's just too good an opportunity to pass up. And a few years later, well, their loyalty to Jesus has become just an empty shell. They make it to church occasionally when they're not down at Margaret River at their weekender. And they wonder why they don't feel connected and why their faith doesn't seem very real anymore. It's because, well, that insidious greed has just sucked the life out of them. It keeps enticing, especially in a place like Australia. That one takes a while. It often takes 10 to 15 years. Sex is much quicker. It usually takes only Six months. You fall in love with somebody. You see somebody, you just go head over heels with the girl or guy, whatever it is, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, all consumed by them. And so easily and naturally that becomes a sexual relationship in which a bonding is happening that shouldn't be happening. And six months later, well, Jesus has just gone out the window. And greed and sexual immorality, they're murdering our society and our culture. The pain they cause, the damage to people is catastrophic. But by the power of the Spirit we can be different we can be a light to our friends and our community but only if we're different as a broad generalization can i say i think you are incredibly different i ring up campsites occasionally and say "Uh, can i bring a group of people to use your campsite they say who's coming i say university students and sometimes the, the phone just gets slammed straight away the manager of this camp campsite says that this is the best week of the year because you, university students, come here. You are different. You are very, very different. And I'm so pleased. And because the Spirit is at work, we can be confident of progress real, genuine, consistent progress. Not perfection, that doesn't come until Christ returns, but progress. Now, sometimes it's hard to distinguish that process from just growing up. But the fruit of the Spirit is very different to growing up. It's qualitatively different. Growing up, yes, you do become more aware of others, but you don't become more loving of others. It's only the Spirit that does that. The Spirit changes us from the inside out. It's a great work. It's a miraculous work. It's a wonderful, brilliant, attractive work of the Spirit. It's at the core of why God sent the Spirit. It's at the heart of the privilege we have living in the age of the Spirit that the Spirit is changing us. Walk, keep in step with the Spirit.